0: to Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design, and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. On today's episode, we offer part one of a discussion on design thinking with Holly O'Driscoll of Ampersand Innovation LLC and Drew Susco of BHDP. If you enjoy what you hear, we encourage you to rate, subscribe, and give us a review. We also invite your suggestions of other architectural and interior design related topics. I'm your host, Brian Trainer, a workplace strategist for BHDP. Let's get started.
1: So I'm really excited to be with you guys this morning. I'm Holly O'Driscoll, and um, I'm founder and CEO of Ampersand Innovation. And um, I was formerly the global design thinking leader at Procter and Gamble here in Cincinnati as well, where I spent um, a little more than 22 years. So that's my background of a Cincinnati local. And um really excited to, to talk about design thinking this morning. Well,
0: we're glad you could join us. Thanks. Uh, Drew, would you like to introduce yourself again?
2: Yeah, definitely. So Drew Susco here, architect, lead strategist with BHDP.
0: So how did we get lucky enough to have you here today? Uh, how, how do you two know each other, if I don't mind my asking? So, well,
2: guys- Holly has a long history with the firm, actually, and with one of our principals, Patrick Donnelly. And I don't know, Holly, oh. if you want to tell that story.
1: Yeah, you know, Michael and I were talking earlier. Um, I, when I came into the building today, I was like, "Oh, it's been a long time. I think 17 years since I've been in this building." Wow. Yeah. Um, it's and a he said, "Yeah, you know, we used to have an office off the off of Red Bank," and I said, "Yeah, I was there too in 1998 when <laughs> yeah. I worked in engineering wow. and we were redoing the space when Beckett Ridge was first under development, the PNG facility there. Wow, so, that was a while ago. Yeah, so 1998, I remember sitting there, and then most recently last spring we went there and signed all the papers for our new home. So the law firm is now in that building. So, oh, wow. yeah, quite wow. a long history yeah, with BHDP for sure, um, but. When I met Patrick, I think it was maybe 2011, and we were doing a workshop for the Cincinnati Ballet and trying to really help them think differently about their audience and think about how to get more people inspired and excited about the ballet experience. So I had a great experience with Patrick then. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's lots of connections, right? Wonderful.
0: That's great. So um, we we brought you in today because we wanted yeah. to talk a little bit about design thinking. Right. And I don't know if this is too big of a question, but how, how did you get into design thinking?
1: No, it's a great question. I think it's one that I get asked quite often. So um, design thinking came to Procter & Gamble kind of late 2006, early 2007. Um, primarily because of our design leader at the time Claudia Kochka she had a relationship with a well-known strategist Roger Martin Um, I think of him as one of the godfathers of design thinking so she sat down with Roger Martin with Patrick Whitney who was the former Dean of of IIT in Chicago Illinois Institute of Mm -hmm. of Technology and also um, Tim Brown and the Kelly brothers from IDEO Wow. and so they said wow it's quite a collection, yeah right right, <laughs> right. a lot of horsepower there in that room of, right. furiously <laughs> yeah. people are googling right now some of these people but yeah, yeah really the beginning of of what does design thinking look like in corporate life happened in mm-hmm. in that room and um so early 2007 a cohort of of png folks went out to the stanford d school and got trained that was I think June 1st, 2007. I had a baby three weeks later, so I was a little too pregnant to fly oh, at wow. that time. Yeah. So <laughs> so I went and had the baby and had Matt leave and came back and got trained literally the second week. And for me, it changed my life, right? So how do you bring more human-centeredness to everything that you do and to really be inspired by people and design product services, experiences, and solutions that really meet the needs of people? And so that's that's how I got exposed to design thinking. Um, and at that point, we were trained in-house. And mm. for me, it was really uh-huh. a transformative experience for sure.
0: Very cool. So how would you define design thinking? We should yeah. probably start there. What in the world is it? Uh, it's a great yeah. question as well,
1: um, and one that has many different solutions depending on who you ask in the world. Um, for me, I think of it as a shamelessly human-centered approach to solving any kind of problem. And, Just rolls off the tongue. Right. I've right? well, <laughs> you know, thought about it a lot, right? And shamelessly, because I think there is a little bit of... Oh, should I really be paying this much attention to what people need, mm-hmm. um, or should I be more focused on technology, or should I be focused on cost? And I think all of those are true, but I think if you start with really a shamelessly human-centered approach, you can figure out the rest, hmm. right? And how do, you, how do you start with that intention in mind?
0: Now I like that concept. Did you want to add to that? I keep skipping right over you, Drew, and I apologize. No,
2: no, not we're, at all. We're both just fascinated by our answers. Yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because right, our kind of our mantra here is designed for people. Mm-hmm. And so people are at the center of every design problem right. we we take on, right? And so what we try to do in, in our design process is we seek to understand first. Yeah. So we reserve judgment in our design process and we just ask a boatload of questions. Mm-hmm. That's often how we show up, right? We we have an agenda, but that agenda is is not a series of answers. It's not a, a targeted series of um, questions seeking to direct the conversation. Rather, we're just stepping back and really trying to understand who the people we're working with are, what they care about, um, what their needs are, what the gaps are in their you know current set right. of, say, spatial offerings, whatever mm-hmm. the problem is we're, we're taking on. And we, we launch ourselves into the problem from there. Um, the other thing I think is really interesting about design thinking is it <clears throat> steers into the power of creativity mm. um and for us especially in a you know, design profession that tends to come somewhat naturally right we're comfortable putting ourselves out there making mistakes and learning from those mistakes yeah. but oftentimes especially when we're working with um our clients that's a a skill that they've forgotten yeah. it's not that it's not a skill that they don't have because mm-hmm. they certainly do but it's one they haven't flexed in a while yeah and i think that's another interesting aspect of design thinking
1: no i think it's really true and i think at the root of the design thinking practice is change management, right? You're changing behaviors mm-hmm. and really trying to inspire people to think differently um, when you're spot on, Drew, on, on maybe they've lost kind of the tone in that muscle, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe there's been some atrophy <laughs> um, from some of the experiences they've had in large organizational life, mm-hmm. right? And um, change management, I think, is really fundamental to, to making it work as well. So yeah, yeah I completely sure. agree.
0: That's so I heard you say, you know, I mean, obviously it's human centeredness. Somebody asked me this question, so I want to pose it to you sure. Like just yesterday um, in the workplace in the last 50 years or even 60 years. So if you mm-hmm. think about the 1950s and 60s, what's changed about work that we're so focused on people now where we didn't need to before?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's another really great point. When you think about um, what do you do in a world where everything works? yeah right there's a lot of of product categories that you can go and shop today and pretty much everything is going to you know get your hair clean Mm -hmm. everything will get your dishes clean how clean do you want them to be is a different question but (laughs) they'll get they'll generally get clean um and how do you differentiate in in business that are product services and experience based that that really does make people the core differentiator of what you can do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't possible 50 years ago. A lot of things didn't work well, right? I mean, if you think about you know, the stories that my parents would tell about, you know, how often their cars were in the shop or something, right? <laughs> right. I don't know, right. I take my car in for an oil change and maybe there's a little problem that needs fixing, but I've never been towed. Right? I've never, you know, these, these different moments, these different experiences, things just tend to work better. Yeah. And so how do you tailor them such that they actually meet the needs of people? Um, I just finished reading a book called The End of Average by Todd Rose. Hmm. And in it, he talks about how cockpit design in the Air Force um, was originally designed to meet the specifications of the average man and when they went back and did the analysis of all of the measurements um, no individual man in the entire air force fit the exact measurements of the average and they were having some really tragic consequences of this right the planes were going down because you couldn't reach the controls the seats weren't in the right position for real people and so i think it's another great example of you know human centeredness matters more than looking for the average right and that was really the genesis of adjustable seats yep. and adjustable steering wheels and and things that make it um, something that can be tailored for you and now we have that in our cars right, yeah, right. you didn't have that 50 years ago in cars right yeah. you didn't have seat belts I mean, when you think about
2: <laughs> human centeredness yeah, there yeah. you go right, <laughs> right. For all
1: mean, <laughs> safety really important i mean now we have we have a lot of those features that were driven by what does the need of the individual require? And how do you deliver an experience, whether it's mine, grounded mm-hmm. in safety or or um, delight that makes it better? But yeah, the, the whole idea of we're designing for average, well, when average means you're not designing for anyone, so what? Yeah. Right? sure and how do you deliver a better experience
2: it's interesting you mentioned uh, ergonomics and aircraft design because obviously you know with, within the workplace design which sure. is where i tend to spend a lot of my time yeah. um there are ergonomics at play as well right in chairs and desks and things of that nature were also designed to an average american male in mm-hmm. 1962 uh-huh. right and yeah. you know fast seat forward height will always be 18 inches yeah, exactly bat, yeah. right. right but fast forward you know 50 years and um we're still using those principles, right? Those mm-hmm. metrics, et cetera, to design for a much more diverse workforce, yeah. a global workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's 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 definitely a moving target, and there's. It, 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 there's so many shades of nuance mm-hmm. in uh, human needs, so it's I really understand. fascinating. I mean especially coming from say your experience at Procter and Gamble, right yeah. where you're working on global problems that's right. not necessarily just American consumer problems. Can you talk a little bit about how you engaged globally with folks and and more to the point, I think how do you how do you tease out the essence of what people really need?
1: Wow, it's a great question. Um, when you think about looking, in different parts of the world, I think there is a sensitivity to, I don't know, what's the same, what's different? Um, Where are those nuances that do stand out in places where maybe you didn't look in a previous region? Um, And how do you tap into the local insight of the team there to try to really understand what's important? Um, because I think that's the most fundamental question. What Uh is important to you wherever you sit in in this specific location, in this country, in the world, right? Because it doesn't look the same wherever else you go. And really tapping into the local uh, culture and trying to understand What does it look and feel like for them? Mm -hmm. What does success look like? What are you rewarded for? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's true both inside the organization and then also when you look out into a a consumer base on trying to understand what what looks and feels differently. There was a... a, um, even technology, right? I, I did a workshop in, in Moscow a couple of years ago, and I joke every time that I go to a new conference room and have difficulty connecting to the AV system, mm-hmm. the only place in the world where I've never had a problem is Moscow. Really? <laughs> and you shake your head and go, wow, that's really shocking. And huh. then all this stuff comes out in the news and you're like, well, maybe they're better technology than we think them credit, right? So it's it's really an interesting time. But, yeah, I mean, all, even those more tactical mm-hmm. experiences inside of, of a building do look and feel differently hmm. depending on where you are. And... Um, it's really the principles of, of empathy, and I think mm. to your point, Drew, on curiosity, yeah. you talked earlier around starting with the questions, and I think that that essence of curiosity becomes so, so important because we are educated, we're socialized, and we're corporatized to be right.
0: Right. Oh.
1: More than we are <laughs> to say, well, i don't know tell me more about that i'm not sure i agree i'm not sure i understand can you the can power you say of a it? well-placed
2: i don't know yes yeah.
1: exactly mm-hmm. yeah and let that you mean by that what do you mean that, by that, yeah. Mean by that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly right instead of boy i don't agree i think the conversation's over right yeah. which is generally how we've been yes. educated socialized and corporatized to mm-hmm. engage mm-hmm. and i think the principles of design thinking really do challenge that they require you to, to sit back and say hey, that sounds a little uncomfortable. That's exciting. Tell mm-hmm. me more, mm-hmm. right? Instead of oh that's uncomfortable, I should stop talking about it. And <laughs> But that, that's it's a, a trade-off.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the key elements of innovation is that ability to take risk. Right. And people so are, are so afraid to be wrong because they assume that there's a cost associated with making the wrong decision. Yeah. So that exploration doesn't really, you know, uh, pan itself out.
1: Right. I guess
0: is mm-hmm. where I'm searching for that. So it let's Back to design thinking because you've said a couple things and I'm taking notes because I want to circle back to a <laughs> right. few things. So you're just adding to the questions. So you're, you're just gonna be here all day. All right. <laughs> uh, but what are the key elements of the design thinking process? Is it a process? And like, so say you have a new problem, where do you begin?
1: Yeah. So there are are kind of five key principles that do show up in in every design thinking um, activity or process. I think those words often get a little bit um hung up in our our culture as well i think of it as both a method and a mindset and i'll talk a little bit about that as well but from a method standpoint um foundationally the first principle that you would start with is empathy really trying to understand what does that reality look like for the the person or group that you're trying to solve for. Um, And I think you mentioned this earlier, Drew, that helps to inform what is the problem. Mm -hmm. So only by having a good landscape assessment of what's going on with them and trying to understand what it looks and feels like to be in their their experience are you able to say, oh, of course, here's the pain point, right, let's go solve for that. Um, So empathy, problem definition becomes really important, um, also known as framing. So I think those are often switched along the way. The Stanford model would say define is the, the way that they describe the principle. Um, then you get into ideation, prototyping, and testing. And so ideation is the ex- exploration of what's possible. Mm-hmm. How might we solve this challenge in a way that um, really is grounded in helping the people right. and solving for that person? And then prototype is make it real. Get the words off of the page, Mm -hmm. get the sketch (laughs) off of the page, go build something, go try it out. What would you do? Yeah, Yeah, right? (laughs) What would you do if if somebody handed you $1,000 and said, go test this, right? Or $100, right? Um, What would you do if you didn't sleep until Monday? what could you learn hmm. in those, those time periods as well? So prototyping, depending on what kind of uh, category you're in, certainly Big Pharma has a, a pretty significant, thankfully, mm-hmm. regulatory sure, <laughs> yes. hurdle to, to cross, but um, not everything requires that level of intensity and that level of scrutiny. So prototyping becomes really important, and then going back and testing with the people that you went back and empathized with in the beginning. Mm-hmm. right? Is this meeting their <clears> need? And then how do you iterate and refine? Um, so really, really important.
2: Yeah, yeah. That, go ahead. Yeah, what's well, interesting, you described going back to the people that you started yeah. with, right? And so the process is recursive. It is. And iterative yes. simultaneously. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of traction right now around this idea of agile development processes, yeah, right? Sure. Especially in the technology sure. sector. Yeah, and UI, UX, yeah. Yep, exactly. Um, what was that? What, was, what, were, what just happened? <laughs> <at>? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. agile as
1: related to kind of UI, UX, user interface, and user experience. Oh, okay. Um, primarily in, in more digital technology solutions so um one of the the jokes that i share often when i'm teaching design thinking is you know nobody ever looks at their their phone and says those slackers they're giving me another app update right you don't look at them and say they didn't get it right the first time Um, so i would argue all of the apps that are sitting on our phones today are actually prototypes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right they're iterations on on the latest and greatest but we don't judge the app developer for, for saying, you know, you didn't get it time. right the first time. What's wrong with you? Yet we carry these same really toxic thoughts uh-huh. around with us inside of large organizations. Yeah. And you say why is that, right? Yeah. What's the difference? Yeah. And people go, you know what, I'm not mad at my my app developer. So why should I beat myself up or beat my team up for <laughs> sure. not getting it right the first time as well?
2: Well, and it's funny you mention that because in architecture, we like to say that every building is a prototype. Yeah. It's usually the only one of its kind that's built, unless you're talking about residential development, right? sure. where you're rolling out a 1,000 homes in a week. Right. Um, but the funny thing that happens, oftentimes when you walk through a space, say you go to the, k- the kitchen, right, and you're looking for an outlet and you can't find one on the counter, and you think to yourself, my God, the architect didn't know what they were doing and you're critiquing this one very tiny element when the reality yes. is you're in this entire environment that has been crafted by hundreds of people working collectively yeah. you know to deliver hopefully hopefully a seamless experience so that you don't run into an obstacle in the built environment yeah, yeah. um and it's a, a similar hurdle right um where the reality is i think and the future might be within the design of space mm-hmm. that we begin to embrace the idea that Spaces can be somewhat temporary and we can tinker with them and we can incrementally improve them over time, as opposed to saying we gotta get this right the first time. Right. All of our butts are
1: online. Yeah, no, and, and how do you design with that flexibility in mind? Mm. Um, and you know, even when I think about my home, I fired off a note this morning to the kitchen design guy that I'm like, do you have a plan for me yet? Right? <laughs> I mean, because even I mean our home spaces, we seem really flexible when we think about iterating and refining and updating our home spaces but why isn't that also true in our our workspaces right i don't know where the philosophy starts to take a shift but it's a really interesting one i mean people have made look at hgtv right what if there's an hgtv (coughs) for corporate spaces Mm -hmm. i don't know right what would what would that look like and how would you play in that space that would allow people to be just as engaged in that experience as they are in in you know their own personal spaces yeah. uh, there's
2: a show in the uk called grand designs really? which is run Officers? by a guy named kevin mcleod no it's it's residential construction um so hd HGTV in the u.s is very super and this is me being a crit, critical architect right it tends to be about the materials yeah. and the finished space mm-hmm. Grand designs in the UK is a little bit more about the design process and the construction process. So they oftentimes work with self builders who are people who are like, I'm doing this for the first time. I'm going to be the project manager. I only have 300,000 pounds to spend on a, you know, 600,000 pound project. Um, and it's fantastic like if you're looking if you like HDTV i love the that next stuff, step right? is grand designs when wow. i'm traveling that's
1: it. all i watch in the hotel yeah yeah it's so fun <laughs> yeah.
2: but wouldn't it be interesting to peek into other people's spaces yes. oftentimes i mean one of the things that you know brian and i both have the benefit of is that we get to walk through lots of corporate environments and i imagine yeah. you do as well especially right. in the consulting business sure. and working with others so you know we have a broader perspective of what is available on the market <laughs> um, versus most folks quite frankly um, yes people are some some people are spending less time with their organizations are or bouncing through you know multiple yeah. organizations but lots of people still work for one company for the duration of their entire career mm-hmm. and all they know is what they see every single day right and so one of the challenges that we face to your point about possibility is, Opening up people's strategy, minds to right. what might be possible. It's interesting you mentioned HDTV because the thing, one of the things that's happening in the architecture and interior design space is Google Images. Yeah, people can look at the next coolest thing out there, and what that's doing to some degree is it is creating a bit of an arms race mm-hmm. um, within corporate real estate design. Um, you know, one of the things that we often hear from our clients is that. We gotta have the, you know, we have to win the war for talent, which obviously is a bellicose way of saying yeah, we yeah. need good people, right, and we right. need yeah. people who are engaged in the work that they do. Okay. I like bellicose. <laughs> <laughs> I also like Bella Lugosi. Go on. You go.
0: <laughs>
2: well, we often hear, you know, how can the space be a, a key tool in attracting and engaging the workforce mm-hmm. when the workforce can open up their browser and see what Google Space looks like or Facebook Space looks like or. Whoever else's space looks like, yeah. um, and it's accelerating the de- des- you know the design process. It's it's introducing new possibilities. Mm-hmm. It's pretty fascinating, but it's very similar to the HD HG- comment. Right. In that, but, quite frankly, because of the internet, we're just more aware of what's out there
1: now. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. No, it's it's the democratization of what's possible. Right. Yeah. Right. right.
0: Yeah. I just I had a you know I, I want to share a weird anecdote um, because it, I was a guest in someone's house. This is. Uh, a piece of design that got me so excited i was off my head with joy and i'm still like i get giddy thinking about it now and it just you gotta hear i was a guest in someone's house and they had a special guest bedroom suite with its own bathroom right and so it had this shower that was about three by five feet so about tub sized shower right but it was had these beautiful glass doors and on the right side was the the shower head Right, But on the left was where the door opened, and that's where the nozzle was, on the left-hand side of the shower, not underneath the shower nozzle, on the complete opposite side. And you were able to open the door, turn on the water, not get wet. Water didn't go everywhere because the glass was on the other side. You could get the temperature right before you even stepped in. And you could step, when you were stepping out, you could shut it off right next to your towel. And I thought, this is the single most brilliant piece of design (laughs) that I've seen in years. And it made me want to redesign the entire bathroom. And I thought the only reason we don't do it that way is because it's not convenient for the plumber. Right. Right. Right? right. (laughs) Yes. I'm like, oh, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And I was so excited by it because suddenly my experience in the shower was better. You know, I didn't have to deal with it hitting me in the face or getting my hair wet. I I, I don't know why. But that empathy piece.
1: And so that's human centeredness. Well done. Yeah, 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 Yeah. But it's exactly it. And how many other other trade-offs do we make in our lives that are not grounded in what's great for us, they're what's great for someone else, right? Right? And um, if you think about even how long, back to the 50s and 60s, I mean, I remember being a a young child. um, I I was not alive in the 50s and 60s, to be clear. But (laughs) (laughs) I remember being a young child, and my parents had luggage that did not have wheels, right? right? These (laughs) giant cases that weighed a ton in their own (laughs) right um, that were probably from the 60s. And why did it take us so long to figure out how to put wheels on luggage? <laughs> yeah. And when you think about human centeredness, that's another great kind of iteration on why carry this bag that makes you walk sideways yeah. and uh, end up at the chiropractor yeah. when you could twirl it. And then right when you think about the wheels again, the wheels used to only go in one direction. Now they spin 360. Right. So you can kind of push your bag and as, instead of just pulling it when you walk through. So those elements also core human centeredness, right? Mm -hmm. How can you be more focused on what the people need than focused on running, you know, a thousand of them per minute on a line or making it easier for the plumber Mm -hmm. or many other things along the way, right? Now, when you walk, I have four small, well, they're not so small anymore. I think of them as small, four children. (laughs) um, And they used to not have those baby holders in the restroom Now you can kind of drop your kid on the wall
2: in the bathroom. I mean, it's it's
1: really, really, because you don't know what to to do with them. Next to your coat. Exactly right. It's this, instead of just a coat rack or a little coat hook in the bathroom, you have a lot of those things, too. So, I mean, things are getting better, Mm -hmm. even the existence of family restrooms. I think that's a little bit of a design thing exercise in its own right, observing who needs to go where and who needs help when they're going and realizing that's not always the mom with the kids, right? Right. I mean, I travel a lot. My husband's with the kids. Quite a bit mm-hmm. and um, yeah, all elements of human centeredness, and I think we're getting better. Yeah,
0: sure. Yeah. So, then the question that I wanted to ask um, is design thinking just for designers?
1: Oh, not a chance. <laughs> no, no, I think it's in many ways um, the term design thinking is a little bit disadvantageous, right? Sure. Um, I think of design thinking as lifestyle. I mean, for me, it's about solving whatever problem or challenge that you're facing in that moment and using the principles of, wow, you know, how can I really empathize with the person who's experiencing this? Sometimes it's me. Sometimes it's my children. Sometimes it's my coworkers. Sometimes it's people I don't know. Right. (laughs) Uh, Lots of lots of different things. Um, But starting with, huh, what really, really is the problem here? And what would a better solution be? Like your shower example is a genius one. Yeah. Right on, wow, what if we stopped designing for the water line and for the plumber and said, what really makes it better for the people? Hmm. And that shouldn't have to be special, right. right? That should be normal that we put the people first. And so no, I think absolutely design thinking is is grounded in everybody has an mm-hmm. opportunity to solve problems putting people first. And um, I think the design community had, had started with the principles first, mm-hmm. absolutely. But that works for everybody.
2: When you mentioned that it's a lifestyle, and I also heard you say mindset earlier. Yeah, right. Right. And so it's a bit of a mindset shift when you were talking about change management Mm -hmm. and the fact that, um, especially when you're working in large organizations, oftentimes people, especially people in the US, are really good at identifying and solving problems, Mm -hmm. breaking down problems into incremental parts and (laughs) apportioning those parts out to experts to resolve them. That's right. But that doesn't necessarily work when you're trying to deliver, say, a transformational um, change, Right. right? Because the reality is, you're trying to change the paradigm in which we currently operate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's say that, you know, you, your background at Procter & Gamble, right? Let's say that um, we are no longer solving for how to wash clothes in a uh, you know, Western environment. Instead, nice. we're trying to figure out how to wash clothes for, say, a billion people, um, say, in the Indian subcontinent mm-hmm. who don't have maybe at the, the time access to um, the same technology that we do right how might we <laughs> to use yes. design thinking right, right um you know take on that challenge mm-hmm. which is a completely different one and quite frankly you know formulating uh soap for a you know western washing machine might not be the best solution and even the experts who know how to do that might not uh, be capable of breaking out of that mindset and i come back to mindset because i'm, I'm really curious especially at a um you know a huge company like procter and gamble how do you cultivate a culture that is willing to embrace design thinking, willing mm. to reserve judgment, willing to step back and really appreciate a good problem as opposed to, you know, seek uh, a, a solution immediately.
1: Yeah, I think it's 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 a really great point when you think about um, the places where it is really stuck from a philosophy standpoint, um, it comes from the leader. And when we started our journey at PNG, we spent a lot of time training people to be facilitators. And um, we had several hundred kind of at our peak. And what we realized along the way is that um, a very small percentage of them were actually really, really great facilitators. And we went and tried to really understand what's made them great, right? What's going on there? is that they brought the mindset to work every day. It's part mm. of how they experience life. Ah. And so it's a lot easier mm-hmm. to facilitate when that's kind of how Just you show you up are. in the world, right? Yep. Um, and we then we found that the places where the mindset really stuck most effectively is where the leadership philosophy was congruent with people matter more than anything else that we do. Hmm. And um, if you can get to a, a, an organization where the leader says... Yeah, go try something wild and crazy because there's more upside Mm -hmm. to exploring that than there is downside to, you know, not exploring at all or getting it wrong. Um, But that requires a couple of things are true inside the organization, right? Um, It requires that there's psychological safety.
0: Right. That's a big one.
1: The freedom to say, (laughs) hey, I got it wrong or I'm not getting it right and it's taken a really long time. Um, And to have the leader look at you and say, it's okay, I've got your back. And that's, I think, hard to come by Mm -hmm. um, because there's such an urgency to not only get it right, and get it right, you know, even if it's not the first time, pretty close to the first time, right. um, but because you've got the Wall Street pressure as mm-hmm. well. And how much of a bet can you afford to make on an idea or a problem that you don't know how it's gonna go down? Hmm. And how long can you, right. can you kind of hedge that? Um, psychological safety, I think, is critical. Um, I had a, a guy with me for six months as an innovator in residence. Um, my friend Ingo Routh, he's got a PhD in innovation management. Um, he's now in Toronto, but he finished his PhD from Chalmers University in Sweden. And um, I said, wow, we should figure out what we can learn from each other, right? You've gone through this academically. I have all of this corporate hands-on experience. Come. And so he came for six months. And together we developed this approach that we talked about as Innovation readiness for teams, hmm. and so we looked at measures of psychological safety, initiation climate, and creative self-efficacy, to really going kind to of step back and say, you know, are the conditions right mm-hmm. in your team in this moment for you to go and try some some crazy things? Are you able to innovate? And so we ran that that um, prototype with a couple of different teams, and it was really hmm. effective at kind Of looking into the organizational dynamics, um, we used a more generative approach, right? So we'd ask people on a scale of one to five, you know, how would you rate da 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 da? And instead of, of saying, you know, well, why did you rate it a three? We asked them, what would it take to get to a four? To, exactly yeah. right, wow. to yeah. get to a four, so or to win. change the mindset. Yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. It's you're flipping it, it's generative, it's not poking holes, yeah. it's saying, let me imagine what's needed in order to get to that point. And then you can funnel that back to the leadership and say, here are some of the conditions and some of the imperatives we think might really help you in your innovation goals. And so that's been really a powerful experience as well.
2: So it's almost as if the climate has to be right for innovation to occur. You said innovation readiness, right? Yeah, the conditions. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, the conditions really
1: matter. But that makes sense, right? I mean, even if you look in nature, uh-huh. And the same is true inside of organizational climates. And design thinking, I think one shines a light on here are some places. If you're looking through an empathetic lens to your organization, you learn things differently. Mm-hmm. You say, sure. you know, what do you need? What would take? What would it take to go from a three to a four or from mm-hmm. a four to a five? Um, and then that can help you identify what problem you really need to go solve. You can sit back with the lead team and then say, what ideas do we have to mm-hmm. start to change that? Let's go prototype a few. Great, now let's test them. It's the same, right? Design thinking is uh, lifestyle, right? <laughs> it's showing up in many different ways, for sure. See, that's yeah.
0: a, that tool that you're talking about is something that I'm wildly interested in, for yeah. one, because we've had a lot of conversations with companies that are like, we really need to innovate more. And we try to help them understand what it is. But then mm-hmm. it's like, now what? And there, I was like, there's another tool. There's something we're missing yeah, here. Yeah. How do you make it better? Right. But I like that concept because it doesn't, even if somebody scored all 2s and be, no, you're not ready. That's not the answer. It's right. how do you move to the next? Right, right. Yep. That's really. How do we get you ready? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What a wonderful way to frame that. But that part of innovation is creativity, which you yeah, brought up before. Right. So did Drew. So Holly, how do organizations instill that culture that's like, how do you support encourage foster creativity
1: yeah I think it's a it's it's a issue a lot of organizations really struggle with right Um, I think it's also one of the Gallup had rated the skill sets needed for Mm -hmm. for leaders I think it's in the top five it keeps kind of getting bounced around in one of the top five slots um, over the past several years but creativity is also needed by leaders and I think organizations and individuals are able to unleash their creativity when the system, back to the conditions in the container, really support that. So I'll unpack that a little bit. Think about Mm -hmm. rewards drive behavior. And if you're rewarded for delivering the next incremental shift in whatever category you're operating within, right, um, your behavior's gonna change. So you're likely to not be as creative as if you you had a reward system that said, you need to like, go big and go break things, right? There's a great quote that I use when I'm when I'm teaching a lot, um, a book called People Before Things. Um, Chris Lamping talks about, you can't get to break through until something gets broken. <laughs> yeah, And I love that, yep. right? And sometimes what needs to get broken are the systems that are around the people that are doing the work, right? And sometimes the system is the biggest barrier to creativity. Um, David Kelly, who's one of the co founders of IDEO and one of the the professors at the Stanford D School, Mm -hmm. he has a book called Creative Confidence, Mm -hmm. and he talks about how um, most people lose their sense of creative confidence roundabout by fifth grade, um, age 10. And his attribution is, you've had enough people look at your creative efforts and say, that's not great. Right. You know, if you you draw a tree or well, the tree looks like a horse, what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the point. Right. How do you get to a place where, you know, getting something wrong doesn't mean there's something wrong with you? Right. And how does the organization not view you as flawed or broken? Yeah. Because you took a creative risk. Right? And, right. and don't we want those creative risks? I think we do. Um, but I think it's 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 the core of kind of innovator's dilemma, right? Yeah. How do you explore what's possible while exploiting kind of your current domain in yep. which you're in? And um, how do you balance the reward system for both of those? But yeah, the creativity I think lives within us. Um, one of the, the things that I, I often do with teams is ask them to think about, you know, what would, what would Google do? What would Tesla do? What would Amazon yeah. do? What would GM do, mm-hmm. right? And how do you put yourself in this different mindset? And that tends to spark some different creativity as well people have it, mm-hmm. right? And when you can give them the conditions and the space to freely demonstrate that and to have it be very iterative, um, they bring it every time. Um, I have a friend who I, I partner with occasionally to do improv with teams, hmm. and that's super fun as well. Yeah. And people yes, get and. really, yes, yeah. yes, Ann, well done. You've been, yeah, all right. <laughs> Friends yes, life exactly is one long right. improv.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm improv right now. There you
1: go. <laughs> Yeah. And people get really nervous when you say, oh, we're going to do an improv exercise. And then they end up loving it. Mm -hmm. And then I would bump into people years later and they're like, remember when we did this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do I remember? I think I've done it 20 (laughs) times since then. Right. And yeah, they really, really enjoy that moment because they discovered something in themselves that they are not able to bring every day. And so then how do you challenge them to say, bring it anyway. Right. And how do you let that creativity surface and thrive and, um, it's really important. I mean, our problems in our world, whether they are our, you know, our car or our shower or right. you know something more significant, sure. right? Um, they're not getting any easier, and so we need those those creative minds. We need everybody to bring their full on creativity, all the time, mm-hmm. and to make that normal, right?
2: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned creative confidence one of the things that we often do brian i don't know if you do this when you're facilitating but we we tend to run an exercise called imagine yeah. um, and the purpose so when we're doing you know early stage exercises right oftentimes mm-hmm. it's post-it notes or tell me a time when etc um, but imagine is a bit of a different exercise and the the core of it is to ask people to draw something Yeah. so when you talk about things that people are terrified of obviously you know it's like public speaking is always number one Drawing in public never comes up but I feel like if it was an option it would yes. probably be 1A. Yes. Right. Um, and, and oftentimes what I'll do is I say, you know, I often, you know, I volunteer with elementary school students. Um, mm-hmm. and when I give them crayons and an opportunity to draw, they jump right in. And you ask the question, "Who in who in here is an an artist?" Right? You ask that to a room full of second graders, and everyone's hand shoots yeah, up. Yeah, maybe. And they, all, me, yeah, right. right? And, and they're all trying to get their hand to the highest. But then you ask that same question yeah. to a group of former, you know, elementary school students who have now become, you know, experts in their domain within mm-hmm. the corporate world, and everyone shies away except for sometimes that one person who has been encouraged to do it their entire life. Mm-hmm. And the reality is in that environment, we're asking people to draw just because we want to tap into something different. Right. So we often tell that anecdote and then we and then we break down the problem. We say, you know, we're not asking you to, to draw something that we're going to hang up in a museum. Instead, what we'd like for you to do is find a creative way to express your idea. Yes. So we'll read them a story, power of story. We mm-hmm. reframe right. the way they're thinking about the problem. We set a potentially a new environment and we ask them to draw. 60% success rate, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Um, because some folks are still not comfortable doing yep. that, right? Uh, yeah, so, I did
0: one last week and there were yeah. two of them that just made lists, yeah. which is Which fine. is great. Because at least they were thinking through well, the problem. Right.
2: right. Yeah. And they're sharing things with you that yep. might not come out in a, a group setting mm-hmm. also.
1: No, it's true. And and getting people to just grab the marker <laughs> yeah. is really it, interesting, That first right? step, right? Yeah. yeah. And you know, David Kelly talks about that as well, and my experience has been the same. Um, when you say here go draw your idea though i gotta go to the bathroom i gotta hop on a call i gotta get out of here right (laughs) Right. um and you know i think it it hangs together with back to the the socialization and corporatization um Mm -hmm. and at one of the very first training classes i took when i joined png was how to write a one-page memo Mm. but i never went to draw your idea class never right um I taught that class. um, You identify the (laughs) opportunity. Go bring your idea to life. But it was embedded in the larger design thinking portfolio, right? So we're not trained to do that. And that's never, it's not a college entrance exam skill. It's not something you're going to put on your your application. Um, And so therefore those things atrophy, although I deeply believe they're still living within us, right? Um, And, you know, my handwriting is not, perfect when I am, I'm kind of capturing on a flip chart, but I've, I've taught myself <laughs> to write with both hands. Huh. Oh. And I use it as a, a model for, you know, I'm naturally left handed, but I can do a pretty good job with my right hand. And it's, it's not as great for sure as my left and my left is, is marginally you know, effective, I would say anyway. Um, but I want people to say she's modeling that. Right, and Mm -hmm. to say it is imperfect, Mm -hmm. and I know it, and I know that they know it, and I think it's worth being imperfect anyway Mm -hmm. in those spaces. Right, Um, some of my letters in my right hand just don't come out the same way, but I do it midstream, and sometimes people notice, and sometimes they don't. Hmm. But I want them to to at least have an opportunity to go, well, that looks differently than that, and well, why? The goal is to effectively communicate, Hmm. not to have a museum piece. To Hmm, your point, right. right, and. How do you model that, and how do you hmm. bring those examples yeah. it's every okay single to time? Not be perfect. It's okay, yeah. right? And if if I'm doing that as the instructor, or the facilitator of the workshop, it I'm my hope, my intent is that it makes it okay for them too, right? Yeah. I'm not sure. overt about saying, you know, do you notice that this is different, um, but I want them to to tap into that, right? Yeah.
0: So a couple things: um, iteration. So. Yeah first psychological safety is what you're creating huge huge by saying it's okay to not be perfect yes um and that seems to be key to everything creativity to innovation Mm -hmm. you know to unlocking people's potential is they feel safe to try there was something that i read recently and i apologize that i can't bring it up but there were two groups of people that were assembled to create pottery and one group was told Hmm. your the output will be graded on Um, how perfect your final piece is. And the other group was told, you will be graded on the volume, how many you can create. And what happened at the end of the experiment was the people who had to do iterations had a better quality output at the end because they had tried more things. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that that was fascinating. And it seems to relate. I don't know. It's illustrated with the problem, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I think the volume component, I think, is an interesting one, too. Mm-hmm. So um, the more ideas you have, mm-hmm. the, higher the, the higher the likelihood there's going to there be a be one. good one, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And yeah, most of them are not going to see the light of day. But sometimes those ones that maybe you deem as, as not great are seeds for a really great idea so yeah. the idea of suspending judgment particularly in the ideation phase i mm-hmm. think is really important um and too often we're the ones holding our our ideas back by you know fear of judgment but we're often judging them first yes mm-hmm. right you know we're saying oh i don't know this one's not good and enough. there's there's yeah. interesting research on that topic as well um, it's called collective intelligence in groups and there's a woman out of carnegie mellon named anita Woolley. She partnered with a guy named Tom Malone out of MIT, and they talked about um, how do you really amp up the collective intelligence in groups to get better outcomes, right? If you pose a problem to a group, how do you really um, tap into the best possible solutions? And their going-in hypothesis was, if you get a group of geniuses together um, and assemble that team, you're going to get better outcomes because you have higher um, individual intelligence Mm -hmm. that you're putting into the system what they found is that was wrong right and that you actually get better outcomes if you have individuals with more average intelligence Mm. um, because they have less to lose at some level, right? right? If somebody yes. knows you're the the you know Rhodes scholar from Harvard and you finished college when you were 19, you defer um, to the
0: expert. Yes,
1: bit. right? Like I can't say something wild and crazy; they're gonna think I'm not smart, right? <laughs> right. And right. And if you are are you know just another person on the team in this average mix, it's really different. But they found three main drivers were really contributing to collective intelligence in groups. One is um, social sensitivity. So the ability to read the eyes and read the emotional state and the expressions of others, really, really important. Um, And why does that matter? Because you can see if somebody else has an idea brewing, Mm -hmm. or you can see if they have a question, or you can see if they're bored, right? (laughs) We're wired to interpret people's um, emotional states that way. Um, The second is equal turn-taking in groups. And when you think about how many meetings you probably sat through, Mm -hmm. where there's 10, 20, 30 people in a room and one or two people do all the talking. Consume all the oxygen, Right. (laughs) And you think about, wow, you know, with all of the diversity of thought, experience, and wisdom in the room, are you tapping into any of that? And they're saying, no, equal turn-taking is the way to get to collective wisdom and collective intelligence because of the diversity of thought and experience, uh, which I think is really interesting. And the third component was more women in the group. And they were surprised by that. Uh, But what they said is that after researching further, more women um, actually brings more social sensitivity, more it interpretation. impacts the first two. Yeah, yeah it impacts right. the first two. Yeah, yeah they have an a, a advantage on the first two, so therefore having more women in the group um, who will say, hold on a second, we haven't heard from you. What do you think, yeah. right? right? Really, really different than moving on to the next agenda yeah. item. So yeah. yeah, lots of really great things that we can do to create better environments um, and better practices inside of our organizations to allow for more... It's a collective genius to emerge. Right. Sure. Um, but do we do it? You know, hmm. I don't see a lot of teams. I can't tell you how many times I've given that example, but it's not generally built into how teams are organized. And you say, well, why is that? Because we've slipped back into the default, which is back to change management, right? Right. Yep. So because the behavior change is hard, and we're used to kind of flying on autopilot, and until that moment is disrupted, it's a little harder to to take on something new in that way, even when the all the evidence supports it.
0: Right. And I think that's fascinating because in our sphere, you know, in architecture and design, um, we generally have a design team and they basically hold that, you know, that precious object. And I, I feel like we have a lot of resources here. If you brought in somebody from the accounting team and the and the environmental graphic design and interior design, just a diverse group of different experiences, right. different thought process, and just let them be a part of that. Even the initial Kickoff, I think, would change some of the outcomes because right. it gives them the opportunity to maybe they think they've solved it before. So they know what to do. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be nice to disrupt that process? Right. Once, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I love the yeah. idea of bringing in different disciplines. Um, in fact, one of the, the practices that I I adopted a few years back is you don't run a workshop without a finance person in the room. Yeah. Mm. Um, they are really unbelievably creative and people underestimate them. Yes. Um, because you don't generally want a finance person getting creative, right? right? You want them to be on top of the details, <laughs> which is really, really important work. However, yes. <laughs> if you were trying to figure out how to pay CFO for a new innovation. A <laughs> yeah, right, right. That's yeah, not what we want, not what I'm advocating for at all. But when you think about if you're trying to, to figure out how to fund a new initiative or mm-hmm. how to um, launch a new feature and there's cost involved, they yeah. can help you figure out where the puts and calls. And if they are hearing the voice of your customer or consumer up front in the beginning of the effort um, and can see the logical sequencing of the mm-hmm. ideas and the prototyping, they're already there with you, right? And so you don't have to go back and sell something and start from the beginning and have them go, well, I wasn't there. I'm not sure I heard that. And I don't know if I believe you. Right? I mean, you can, you can jump in faster sure. because they get it. Yeah. And it has been a really um, important accelerator of progress right, to have them in the room. <laughs> yes.
2: I would agree with that. Yeah. Because they understand how the system they get works, it. right? Exactly yeah. right. right. They know mm-hmm. what all the moving parts are. They know how the parts plug into one another. Right, they right. know how the cash flows through the yes, system. They exactly know where right. things are hidden, yeah. potentially, that it can be tapped into. That's exactly right. That's really yeah. Really, really important. Yeah.
0: We had a, a session last week that there was a f- person from finance, someone from HR, Um, A couple people were app developers, so it was a really diverse group, and what they discovered, because the finance person was in the room, there was a budget for personal development that wasn't being used, because people didn't know they could take advantage of it as well, so like, it turned into, we were talking about their space, but it turned into a learning opportunity for other things that that were human-related, because you know the design is ultimately about the people so right if you want to advance your career there's opportunities mm-hmm. yeah and, uh, isn't you're it true yeah. <laughs> so
1: interesting and every organization has something like that right yeah. so yeah. it's you know how do you kind of tap into who knows that and how do you access it yeah for sure
0: thank you for joining us at trends and tensions presented by bhdp we hope you're enjoying our discussion on design thinking enough to join us again as we conclude our constructive conversation on the next episode If you appreciate what you've heard so far, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review.